Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have David No. He's the CTO, Metallic at Commvault. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Metallic and Commvault are actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I am born and raised in New Jersey. Very cool. Uh, yeah, ironically enough, just a few miles from Cobalt's worldwide headquarters. Okay, very cool. So walk us through, you went to university, what did you take and why? Oh, yeah, great question. Went to Rutgers University many years ago, way more than I like to think about. But I was an electrical engineer. They didn't have computer engineering at the time. Okay. Um, but originally I wanted to go into wireless communications of all things. And so I was doing electrical engineering. Okay. What got you passionate about that at an early age? Oh, it's funny. I like to sometimes like to say that engineers are fundamentally lazy, right? <laughs> because as an engineer, what are you trying to do? You're trying to, to make something that is done repetitively or that is boring or that is imperfect better. Right? And sure. you end up working super hard on something to make things more convenient. That's always something I always enjoyed figuring things out and understanding how things worked and fundamentally how to solve problems in creative ways and in kind of new ways that people hadn't considered. And engineering always appealed to me from that perspective. Um, electrical engineering was always something that was, I was really cool, especially with computers. I played with them since I was a little kid. And yeah, it seemed like a great way to go. Very cool. So. You get out of university, walk us through your career and getting to Commvault because you've worked your way up through the ranks for a number of years there. That's right. So I've been in Commvault for well, over 24 years now. And yeah, Commvault actually found me. So okay. at the time, yeah, funny story at the time was the tech industry was crazy. I was interviewing with all sorts of companies. And then this company, this little company gives me a call and says, Hey, we'd like to interview you. I'm like, oh, we're really close to my, my, my home, right? With my parents. And so sure, I'll come home and go interview with you also. Interview I thought went really well, gave me a call back. And I decided to take a chance on this company that did backup of all things, which I had never really thought about. I figured I'd be at Cobalt for a couple of years, then move on to another company and you know, we all can see how well that plan worked out, but happy to have spent my career at Commvault so far. Sure. So walk us through your journey at Commvault, as well as how Commvault is adapted over the last 25 years into what it is today and your role today. That's, that's a very interesting question. I started at Commvault as a developer brought on at a time when we were just architecting our, our core products. We were building on 
some of our backup experience to to come out with a new platform that would be able to handle scale at, at you know, a thousand times what we thought was viable at that time. Right? And as a brand new engineer, as a brand new developer, I was asked to do, help design some of the subsystems with assistance from a mentor. About two months in, that mentor left. And I said, okay, I'll keep working on this stuff. I'm assuming you're going to get me another mentor. And the VP of engineering said, of course, and that never happened. So the opportunities that were afforded to me to really make a difference uh, in terms of the type of work I was doing was very significant, right? It was very meaningful to me. And I think that's been the case throughout Commvault's history. You asked about the evolution and adaptation of Commvault over the years. And I think Commvault has certainly evolved from you know, its roots as a spinoff of AT&T Bell Labs doing backup of just a few things based on Unix at the time uh, to a global company today that really focuses on what customers really need. And I think that's really fueled our transformation over the years is we've always focused on what customers need. And as that's changed, so have we. And we've been able to adapt to that. And the latest you know, kind of incarnation of that is, is Metallic. Okay, but before we dive into Metallica, you have some of the biggest brands on the planet using your platform, but how, and some of them are very much on the cutting edge of technology and willing to adopt that. Others are not in that space. So how have you balanced giving them what they need with also maybe pushing their boundaries a little bit, staying current and making sure you could stay around for 25 years because a lot of companies can't say that these days right? yeah that's true i think um yeah it, that balance is always the trick which is what customers are asking for and then what they really need those right. are two different things and so looking at it's up to us right that's our responsibility to be able to shoot ahead of the target and anticipate what's coming being able to understand the trends in the industry, uh, take those kind of to their natural conclusion or the next step in evolution and introduce that in a way that not only brings value to our customers now, but also in the future and enables them. Ultimately, we're an enabler, right? From a data protection standpoint, we're there to ensure that they're covered in case something happens, no matter what technology they adopt. Um, and the growth of data and the different types of technology that are out there require us to be on the cutting edge of innovation. Otherwise, we can't serve our customers. No, makes a lot of sense. So how does Metallic play into everything here? What exactly is it for our listener? A few years ago, we looked at the state of the market as we always do. And it was evident to us that cloud adoption was accelerating. The adoption of SaaS services was accelerating. There was a crunch of, of resources and that customers were becoming more and more aware of things like external attack, like attacks on their infrastructure and data. We could not have predicted the pandemic for sure, right? Which really yeah. accelerated that. That was a massive push for companies to adopt distributed working technologies overnight. The adoption of SaaS, the adoption of cloud, that's only been supercharged, right? And so, it, Cobalt has many years of technology and best practices. And what we did was we took that 
and built and combine that with the best of what customers are looking at from SaaS. Easy to try, easy to buy, easy to deploy and use, scalable, performance, secure, and really with those two kind of pillars of technology, we created Metallic. Metallic is our SaaS portfolio uh, of products at Commvault. It's part of our broader portfolio of offerings, which include our software, of course, as well as appliances. And we let customers consume our technology in any way that suits them along their cloud journey. And it all works together. And as customers adopt SaaS technologies in the cloud, they can choose to use Metallic along that transformative journey. Okay. And you don't have to give a customer name, but can you actually give us an example of maybe like a typical kind of maybe type of client and what services they would get from Commvault, whether it includes Metallic or not? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think this is common, right? It's an extremely common scenario is that you may have a customer or a company that has been running its own data centers and its own operations for a long time. And with the adoption of the acceleration of cloud and SaaS adoption, uh, that was demonstrated not only to be viable, but also necessary by the pandemic, that they're looking to take advantage of more and more um, cloud-based resources. That's also driven by security concerns, right? Today, the prospect of breach by either ransomware or a malicious insider is on top of everyone's minds. Sure. And so how do customers adapt to that in conjunction, also looking at the fact that they may have technology that they can't move away from. How do they manage it all up from one place and how do they get their arms around it? And so managing that data wherever it lives is one of the core capabilities of Commvault and Metallic. Whether it's on-premises and it's or in the cloud, it doesn't really matter. And you can take advantage of our technology, either self-deployed software appliance or SaaS, as you see fit. And so companies that are somewhere along that phase of their cloud journey, not all on-premises, but not all in the cloud. And that hybrid scenario is, of course, something that most companies will probably be in forever. That's where this breadth of technology, not only from a deployment standpoint, but what things we support um, really make a difference for them. Most of our customers employ some kind of mix of Commvault and Metallic technology. They may use Metallic for, for instance, for Microsoft 365 or their Azure workloads or their AWS workloads or their OCI workloads, right? While they may use our software or our appliances to protect their on-premises data centers. And as that mix changes, they may choose to metallic to manage their entire estate, for instance, and move to that SaaS first model with their overall cloud strategy. Okay. No, that makes sense. So obviously like maybe forget about the hardware side of things for a second, how long, and it's probably depends on what needs are like, is there a rough range of how long, if I sign up as a customer today, like how long until I can actually start using the product? That's one of the advantages of, of SaaS is that time to value, time to be able to actually be able to use what you purchased can be very short. So for something like they're protecting a SaaS-based application like Microsoft 365, yeah. it can be up and running in as little as 15 minutes. Okay. So yeah, instant basically. Yeah. 
and then hardware, it probably depends on what I need and how quick you can get it to me. For Microsoft 365 and others, you don't need infrastructure at all. We provide okay. for you metallic. And depending on, of course, on premises considerations, the volume of data you have, if you want to back up or keep a copy of your backup data on-prem, we can provide that for you. But, but may, you can reuse what you have or you can purchase new hardware. That's up to you. Got you. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. I think with a lot of startups, the challenge is you go after one specific vertical and you try to dominate that vertical, but you guys have so many different clients in so many different verticals. Is that like really a challenge to manage or the fact that they're using Office 360, you don't really necessarily care what vertical they're playing in. Does that matter or not matter the vertical they're in, I guess is the best way to phrase the question maybe. Got it. I, great question, by the way. I think it matters less because at the end of the day, the data is the crown jewels of any company. And so protecting it um, is very much core to business continuity and how they can be resilient to anything that might happen externally to the business and make sure that they can continue. Of course, each industry has some different regulations, which can be, which present different challenges. Right data residency, retention periods, how often data needs to be protected. I would say in that regard, it's pretty straightforward, right? Because companies protect their data, they need to protect their data, whether it's a law firm or a hospital or a manufacturing organization. It's a secondary concern after that, right? Yeah. What is it they have to do to make sure they comply with their own regulations? No, that makes a lot of sense. So. Curious, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but now that people understand what you and the team do, how have you managed that obviously like client request and actually feature implementation? Because sometimes when you land these big whale of a client that everybody's heard of and they're willing to say, we'll give you, I don't know, like a million dollars or something to implement this feature, but it really changes the product direction. Like sometimes that's can live, make or break your software going forward. Yeah, it's it. That's a really good question. I think in that regard, those requests, like we have a request from a big customer. They're generally applicable to most other big customers. Okay. I think it's rare that we get something that's so bespoke to a given customer that it could have such a large impact on us. And if that really were the case, of course, because we're customer obsessed and customer driven that we would do everything in our power to be able to handle that situation. But the trick is to be able to solve those problems in such a way that the solution is generally applicable to, to many customers. And that's part of the challenge of innovation is to be able to do that. No, I actually think that's really good advice because so many people say, okay, we need to build this one feature for this company. But it's like, you need to really step back and say, no, I'm sure we can solve this for majority of our customers. And sure, some of our customers might not use that feature because they don't need it, but it's there if they ever do need it, instead of just like trying to build it specifically for one client or just a small handful. Yeah, often it comes down to not building the solution the customer wants, but solving the problem the customer yeah. has. Yeah. No, I think that's really good advice. I'm curious... Obviously, and people probably are wondering this, security's got to be one of your top focuses then, correct? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, and how do you stay on top of that? Because you mentioned earlier, obviously there's, you read all the time that somebody got hacked and like big companies are getting hacked these days, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's a reality of our times. And I think there are two, two kind of perspectives to take on that question. One is from a security perspective, we are the custodians of our customers' data, right? From a metallic perspective, as a SaaS-based provider, we have their data, right? And how do we protect our service from being attacked? And so we have very sophisticated multi-layer system of security that depends on any number of controls that are documented in our uh, SOC 2 Type 2 reports, our ISO, 720, our ISO 27001 reports and certifications. We're also the only data management as a service offering to have FedRAMP high. And okay. so the vast majority of those 421 controls is implemented in our commercial offerings as well. So uh, you know, we have a lot of considerations for security in our service itself. This, the second part of that is how can we help enhance our customer security postures, that end-to-end -end view, not only from prevention standpoint, which is the realm of an antivirus software package, all the way through early detection, mitigation, and recovery, right? That's really the full spectrum of security. Uh, and so we have a, a number of features that are really going that way. I think in the past few years, the lines between security and backup have blurred. Data sure. protection, right? Data protection has expanded in terms of what threats you're protecting against. It's not, not fire, flood, earthquake. It's a hacker, as you mentioned, or some a disgruntled employee. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, that's where a lot of our strategy is going right now and how we're working with customers in terms of things like our ThreatWise release, our AI and ML enabled anomaly detection capabilities, and the fact that Metallic as a SaaS-based service is air-gapped and secure and the data is immutable from attack, even should our customers' environments be compromised. Yeah, and then obviously if, yeah, no, interesting. Okay. And then obviously like if somebody's, I don't know, like on-premise thing, like one of your customers gets attacked, on-premise or whatever, doesn't affect any of your other customers, obviously. It does not. Every customer is separated in the service and those controls are all in it and regularly tested. Yeah, makes sense. So obviously you, you're the CTO and you're a busy guy. How do you stay current with trends and fads? Because <laughs> it's got to be challenging. <laughs> it is absolutely challenging. And the trick is to distinguish a fad from a trend. I think that's, I think you put it very well. It's really, it's really interesting to see something that might be you know, top of mind for everyone right now, but determining if it has real value or staying power is the trick. That one's tough. You really have to read a lot and talk to a lot of people and talk to customers and walk a mile in their shoes. Really the key is to remember who all of this is for, who is this sure. for? This is for our customers and what are they trying to do? And if you take that lens and you look at what's happening in the industry, the different technologies that come up or the different marketing campaigns that pop up here and there, it allows you to cut to the truth, right? What is it that really will benefit our customers? Or are we looking at this just because we want to be a me too or have a check the box feature? Um, and I think if you have a clear sense of that, then 
customers can tell, right? You know, that that you really have a strong vision on where things are going. No, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious then, obviously blockchain, NFTs, and a bunch of other kind of things that are just related to that are getting a lot of good and bad publicity over the last couple of years. Sure. How do you manage that with some of your big kind of enterprise clients? Because you must get the question, something as simple as, do we need to move everything to blockchain or do we need to offer NFTs or, you know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? Mm -hmm. Get questions like that. And how do you handle that and decide whether you adopt that or not adopt things like that? Sure. Again, we go back to really understanding what our customers' motivations are, what their concerns are, what they're worried about. I think that is the key, right? Sure. Blockchain is super popular. People are like, Hey, can we incorporate blockchain into our software or services somehow? You look at it, we're like, okay, what benefit can we derive from that? Is there a problem that, that blockchain addresses? And that answer, I would say, is still being debated. And so we can go all the way back over time to things like serverless data movers, right? Being able to uh, move data from disk to some other media at the time it was taped without having a server read the data. It was an interesting idea, but at the end of the day, what were we trying to do was to make sure that production servers were not impacted by backup. And that can be solved in different ways. And understanding that really helps you focus. And trying to adopt technology for technology's sake is not the way to go. No, I 100% agree. I always curious about enterprise and some of the, like blockchain, for example, everybody's got to move to blockchain. It's like, yeah, but do you? <laughs> like what? Yeah, like to your point, like what benefit are you getting from it? You might not, does it really matter? It really depends on what you're trying to do, right? That's right. It, I'm sure we will come up with some, there, there's constant innovation, right? Yeah. Across all types of technology and that kind of technology or any other kind, we could come up with a fantastic use for it this afternoon, but you know, that that's problem then solution. Sure. That makes sense. So I'm curious, it, just based on some research I was doing before the show, you, you basically have ran metallic, almost like a startup. How have you done that in a company with lots of clients? Because that can be really challenging in itself, where you're kind of going to be agile and grow this thing and get actual users onto it. It was a great story. We started this, you're right, as a startup within the company. The question is always, how do you disrupt yourself? It's the totally. innovator's dilemma. And what we did was we, we built a small team of people okay. with experience with Commvault and people without experience at Commvault and gave, and we gave our team a, a clean sheet of paper and said, do what you need to do to build a modern SaaS data protection and do it with whatever you need at Commvault. And if you need to invent a new process, go do that, right? Because then what we can do is take that and bring it back to the rest of the business. And being given that, that degree of freedom, along with the guidance, the air cover from, from Sanjay, our CEO, was very empowering. We were able to go from concept to release, initial release of the service in, in just record time. It was like seven or eight months. Wow, that's um, quick. <laughs> and the, the, of course, the technology basis formed a huge part of it, right? The, that, that foundation was fundamentally sound and we could build on it and really concentrate on what we needed to offer to customers. And because we were built on Commvault technology, 
then we didn't have that initial trust issue. Customers were like, will this really work? We're like, yes, we'll work, right? We've been the leaders in the enterprise space for many years uh, and we're leveraging their technology in this SaaS offering. So it was the best of both worlds. It was a startup where we could be innovative and we had freedom, but at the same time, we could fall back on the power of this mothership, right? All the experience, all the support, all of the, the technology there, and just use that as a launching pad for the service. Very cool. No, I think that's really good advice. And I think just having buy-in from obviously the CEO and the other C-suite members, including yourself, is a huge thing. I, absolutely. It's impossible to do something on this scale or have the success without the full buy-in of the organization, without all of us rowing in the same direction, understanding the strategy, understanding the vision, and you know, understanding what we were trying to do in such a short period of time. Sure. So there, there will be a bunch of kind of young CTOs listening to the episode. What advice would you give them that you've maybe learned along the way through kind of trial and error? And what advice would you give to them? I think the first thing when people ask me, what would I say to, to anyone else? Don't be afraid of being uncomfortable with what you're doing. That's good um, advice. Yeah, I think people shy away from being uncomfortable. There's totally. a, it, imposter syndrome is held as a negative. It's something to be avoided. I think it's something to be embraced. As a CTO, you need to have a broad, broad sense and expertise in all aspects of the business not only from a technology perspective, but how that technology is purchased and consumed and used. Understanding ev what everyone has in it from, from the developers to the people in marketing to people in legal and sales and HR, right? All aspects of the company, what that means all the way to the customers and the partners when involved. Uh, it's quite important to always keep that in mind. Being uncomfortable means that you're learning means that you're growing. Being too comfortable is a recipe for being stagnant in your career, I think. No, I 100% agree. And I wish I would have overcome that a lot earlier than I did. But how or what advice do you give to people to actually get over that? Because it's easy for you and I to say, you should do this. But it was to me, it was really challenging to actually get over that. It, it really is. For me, the key was to just tell myself that what Failure is not something to be afraid of. Um, totally. I think it's something that you look at as an opportunity and understanding that you do the best that you can with the information you have at that time. You need to make decisions. You can't be paralyzed by indecision and just own it, right? It's okay if you make the wrong decisions. And if you're wrong and if there is a failure, learn, move on, adapt, adjust, and that's the point of being agile, right? Is learning from failure. It's not aiming at different things in the market. It's understanding, take a position and adjust as needed along the way. No, I think that's actually really good advice. And I also think too, it's, and it's just, you don't have to just like pit, like we're so used to this agile as a developer. And then as a CTO, we're so used to like this agile process where we iterate and do like little changes over a period of time. But when it comes to actually like pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, we seem to not want to do it in that part of our life, right? But yeah. we'll do it in our every other part of our day job. <laughs> That's right. And really the key to this is you have to understand why you failed. 
Totally. If you were put in a position where you do something and you don't know why you failed, then that's the real failure, right? Yeah. In instrument everything, understand everything. That way, when, if you do fail, you have a plan to move forward. And that kind of, that in of itself, that's your safety net, right? Yeah. If you're certain that you can learn from a bad thing that happens, then the bad thing is not so bad. No, 100%. And a lot of it too, is it really going to matter in one week, two weeks, three months, six months, a year? Most of the time, yeah. no. Most of the time, no. If you understand what's happening and you can, because of your instrumentation, you can tell when a decision is wrong quickly enough, Yeah, it's okay. Obviously, some big decisions will have repercussions months in the future. So you have to, you know, do, again, but do the best you can and have the confidence that you can make the adjustment if necessary. Sure. Any other advice you'd maybe give to your younger self or CTOs listening or entrepreneurs listening? Yeah, I think the other thing that was really evident to us in this process is be open for, to ideas from anywhere, right? A, a cross-functional approach is so important, not just to make sure that everyone understands the direction and can be can work independently. It actually makes you, involving more people may seem like it's slowing things down, but it's really not. Because if everyone knows actually what's going on, then you can you know, go off and do your own thing and then all come back together again very rapidly. And great ideas can come from anywhere in that process. We've had some of our best ideas come from marketing or legal when we're doing a demo, right? And those ideas are valid. Don't just discount them because they're not from engineering or product management. Everyone you have is smart. Make sure that you consider all of that. No, I, I think that's really good advice. The other thing that I'm curious to get your thoughts on that seemed to work really well for me over the years is so many, so many not thinking about the customer first. It's just because it doesn't make, as I'm like a UX designer guy, and it's so easy to be like, well, it doesn't make sense to me, but it doesn't really matter if I'm not the target market and it makes sense to the actual target user based on what we're building, it, then that's all that matters. If the target user understands it, it doesn't matter if somebody that will never touch the piece of software likes it or understands it. I think sometimes like we forget that in our younger career. Yeah, it's one of those things where that that outside interview, who are you building the solution for? What is their experience going to be? I think one of the things to me that, that was really helpful was that as customers are looking for simpler and simpler solutions, they're not looking for, if you look at the old super complex enterprise applications that you needed a degree in that created a job opportunity or description in of itself, yeah, right? Yeah. It, design is king, ease of use is king. And so if you, if you can make sure that everyone understands why you're doing what you're doing, and if that requires education of your UX team, that's fine, or user interviews or what have you, that's fine. Uh, but it should all make sense to everybody. And so, you, you know, what I was mentioning before, one of the, we've had big changes from people in demos going, hey, why did we put this here that I don't understand that question? We're like, ah, you're right. <laughs> and yeah. just shifting things around a little has made a significant difference. But how have you fostered that culture where you're willing to take that kind of feedback because it sounds like sometimes, oh, why do we put this here when we should be over here? Sometimes that's a few minute change. Sometimes you have to rework a bunch of stuff. But how have you fostered that culture where, you know, somebody 
that's not in the C-suite feels comfortable enough to literally say to you as a CTO, this doesn't make sense to me. Maybe we need to change that because that's challenging. It is. And with the scale of the team, it's one of the most challenging things to maintain. It comes down to culture, right? There's a, sure. There is a, a saying that says strategy or culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it's true. I think it's incumbent upon leaders to make sure that the culture of the team fosters that kind of communication and openness. I think as a leader, you have to be, you have to walk the walk. You can't say, hey, listen, everybody, and then have a closed door attitude. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, yeah. That way. And making sure that I, I do what I say is really critical. And setting that example will open up the whole org, right? It just will. And making sure that as a leader, you want to listen to everyone as much as possible. Right. And making sure everyone understands that when a change isn't made, why it's, it can't be made, that we looked at it and it could take time or it's something we'll look at in the future. It's great feedback. There's no such thing as bad feedback. It's just feedback. Totally. And so understanding that and making people understand that is really important. No, I, yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things for somebody in the C-suite to let go and accept that they're not going to get it right every time because nobody does. It doesn't matter if it's day one or you've been at it a hundred years, right? Like you're never going to hit it every time. And like exactly. having that culture that allows that feedback and getting it from somebody with a different point of view from, it's never a bad thing. But I think a lot of CTOs and anyone in the C-suite or management can really struggle with that because it's like an ego thing sometimes with some people, not everyone. It can be unconscious too, even if yeah. it's not, it can just be like, oh, I don't have time to listen to this, or we can't mess with that. We have more important things to do. Obviously prioritization and stack ranking and uh, of things to do is important because otherwise you don't go anywhere, right? You have to be able to make hard choices. At the same time, you know, that one discussion can trigger um, a different way of thinking about any part of the product. And so it's a tough balance. Listen as much as possible. Sometimes it's just not possible, but listen as much as you can to, to everybody. Sure. Curious, is there anything that you've learned in kind of outside of your business life, because you've been at Commvault for so long that you've been able to maybe bring back into business or vice versa? <laughs> I think one thing that it can be challenging sometimes to that, uh, that culture of openness is perhaps some intimidation when people come in from organizations, which are not that way. Uh, um, yes. And a little humor, I think goes a long way to breaking that down and to make everyone know that everyone else is human, right? Sure. Just a touch here and there is quite important. I think it doesn't have to be serious all the time. We often open our meetings with five minutes of fun. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> Catching like, up with each other, okay. just joking about someone's background or what have you. We don't have to start exactly on time. We it's because so much of our lives are still remote. It's something that is missing from day to day interaction, and, and that'll help. But it has to be a limit, and I don't think it's particularly formal. But it's understood. First first few minutes, we can just joke around with each other and remember that we're all colleagues and we all like each other. Right? Yeah, <laughs> So I'm curious to maybe what other advice do you have for people that are doing the remote thing nowadays, whether they were that way before the pandemic or whether the pandemic kind of forced them to be like that? Because what you just outlined is a huge challenge, I think, for 
pretty much every company at this point. And it's true because our team is sort of distributed anyway. Even if we were quote unquote in person, it really wouldn't matter, right? We have people all over the country, all over the world. Establishing that the culture and understanding the humanness of people, despite the fact that we all are running a million miles an hour, that's just super, super important. People have lives outside of what you on the screen or what you're asking them to do and keeping that in mind. That's a key part of working with a team anyway. I think even more so in these times, right? Because the remote work capability or work from anywhere has really allowed people to really work from anywhere. And so unrealistic expectations sometimes can be put upon people, even though we all try our best, but having that understanding, it's just super critical. And as long as your teams get things done, I mean, it's fine, right? People have to pick up their kids in the middle of the day or someone's sick or what have you, just do what you need to do. No, I think that's really good advice. So I'm curious then, because oh, I think a lot of companies are dispersed now across the country or maybe the world, and a lot of people are working remote, maybe even part-time, how do you make sure that people aren't stuck in meetings day after day? And because and, we all know that trying to build software in 20-minute or hour increment intervals is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really difficult. I think you know, I've heard of some companies that have no meeting weeks, like a okay. whole week, just no meetings focus on what you're doing. It is incumbent upon people to, and I think you have to make it okay to say, no, I can't meet at this time. And we have to adjust to a different time because I just need some time to work or focus on yourself, block out some focus time in the calendar. So people don't just steal open slots. I think that taking control of your calendar is probably the, one of the top things I would say or advise to people, don't let other people control your calendar. Very quickly, yeah, very quickly, you'll find that you have meetings booked from eight in the morning to seven o'clock at night with nothing in between. And you're like, okay, I have to eat sometime, <laughs> whatever. But yeah, it's something that I constantly pay attention to because I'm always trending towards, hey, let's get things done, let's do whatever. But at the same time, I have to be able to do get things, other things done during the day. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So we're coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice or things that you want to mention to the listener? And then we'll close out the show. I would say, again, culture is a huge focus, right? And culture comes from communication, or it is heavily dependent on communication. Communicate with your people. And it goes both ways, right? Listen to your people, communicate with your people, communicate outside your organization, over-communicate. And if people know what's happening, it doesn't mean that everyone has to participate in the decisions, right? Don't let that paralyze you in decision-making, but it's something that I've personally learned over the past few years. I used to trend towards, hey, let's start without a tiny group and then bring people in. And that doesn't always work very well, right? Because then you're, it's actually wasting more time bringing in other people who should have had input from the beginning. It's easier to over-communicate from the start. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Follow-up question to that then is, we all know that developers and a lot of people in tech right now are extremely hard to find. And I think most tech companies are going through some sort of challenge at hiring and recruitment. Any advice or thoughts or how you've managed that? Or because I think we're all going through that right now. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a tough one for sure. 
you really want people to work for you, right? You want people to want to work for you. Totally. Just paying a salary is one thing, but spend so much of your time interacting with people you work with and at work, whether it's virtually or in person, it's got to bring you some sort of other meaning or connection. And being able to establish that or demonstrate that to people and have clarity in your vision is important. And again, back to the over-communication, if everyone understands and believes and can convey the vision, then that will attract people. And if the vision is clear and it makes sense and it's compelling, that can only help with the recruiting. Sure. And it sounds like if you guys nail that, you're going to get your current employees to recruit their friends and acquaintances to come work at your company. That's the hope. Yeah. No, very cool. But we're coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, Metallic and Commvault? <laughs> so for Metallic, you can visit metallic.io. There's a ton of information there about our products and our offerings, pricing, everything is there. Commvault is at commvault.com. And if I myself, oh goodness, I think you know all about me now from this, <laughs> from this session. Of course, I have my LinkedIn page that you can look up and you know, reach out to me. Perfect, David. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.